This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Thorn Podcast. So it's been a little while since the last time we had an episode. It's been a very busy summer month. Lots of things going on. Lots of new and exciting things happening at Thorn. Uh, unfortunately, though, my very good friend and colleague and former co-host of the podcast, Frank Lippman, Dr. Frank Lippman, had some opportunities come up that are going to be taking up his time. So he's not going to be able to continue hosting with me. We do wish him the best on those new projects, and maybe he'll be back on from time to time as a guest. And luckily today, we have a great guest that's going to speak with me, who is Dr. Amanda Frick. Dr. Frick is Thorne's Executive Director of Medical Affairs. She's also a naturopathic doctor, and she's an acupuncturist. And before she came on to Thorne, she had a practice that specialized in women's wellness. So welcome to the podcast, Amanda. How are things going for you? Things are really great. I'm looking forward to fall, which is my favorite season. But other than that, things are really good. The summer was good. So I know you live not far from the beach. Have you been able to get out into the water at all? I haven't this year. I still had a little COVID hesitancy, so I've spent a lot of time in home. I've looked at water on the screen, and I've gotten into some new shows, but no beach time. Hopefully, you've got a good screensaver with some crashing waves on it. You can look at it from time to time. I do. Apple TV is really epic for good screensaver. <laughs> well, it's been a great summer in Colorado. Managed to get out and do a lot of hiking but it's coming to a close. We're moving into fall now and all our aspens are turning into that brilliant gold. So it's really kind of a beautiful time to be in Colorado. Bob, is there a bad time that's not beautiful to be in Colorado? Uh, you know, January and February can be kind of cold. I did grow up in Michigan, so I'm not unfamiliar with <laughs> harsh winter. You know what winter can be like. I do. It's yes. been a minute, but I do remember. Yes. So let's get into the main discussion for this week, which is polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. And part of the reason we wanted to dive into that discussion is because Longevity, which is Thorne's sister company, has recently been awarded a grant from the National Institutes of Health. That's pretty prestigious. Uh, maybe Amanda can tell us about that. And so... What we want to do is talk a little bit about what PCOS is, how would a woman know if she had it, and then why Thorne would want to do the study and who might want to be in it. Amanda, tell us about PCOS. What is it exactly? I think that's the tricky part. It has a million definitions, and, and we don't really know exactly what it is. Uh, it has a lot of components of hormonal imbalance, some metabolism issues, 
uh, and some other fertility challenges that go along with it. It really doesn't have a tight border of definition, and I think that's part of the challenge there. But I do think most women present with either some sort of issue with their menstrual cycle, some complaint about androgen-related symptoms like acne, hair loss, or they're struggling with their weight and weight management, and, and that becomes a concern. So as I understand it, PCOS is actually the most common reproductive disorder in women. Is that Did I get that right? Yes. So it's, uh, are we talking about 20% of the population? Is it somewhere around there, or how common is it? I think it varies where you see it. So, you know, some people are estimating 6 to 13%. I've seen other resources saying that since 50% of PCOS is undiagnosed, that they guess that it's more like 40% of whoa, women. Whoa, whoa. Uh, so it's really kind of all over the board, depending on, you know, where you're looking. But I think that we can solidly say about 13% or more. And based on what you're saying, that it can have a lot of different presentations, a lot of different kind of symptoms. I gather it's not just one thing, right? It's not like diabetes, okay? You can easily be diagnosed if you have full-on diabetes. Your blood sugar's high. Insulin is either super high or it's gone. So the, the criteria for diagnosing diabetes is pretty straightforward or hypertension or something like that. But PCOS is more of a range. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's the difference. I mean, diabetes is a medical diagnosis and, and PCOS is a syndrome. So it doesn't have those tight categories or diagnostic criteria. You know, you could be sitting next to someone who also has PCOS, has a completely different symptom presentation, which I think is part of the issue of helping women to identify if that's something that they're dealing with, because no two women are exactly the same in how their experience is presenting with PCOS. Why would a woman even think she's got it? What kind of problems would she notice? And I should say, does this affect a typical age group? Uh, is it more common in younger women? Or who notices it more, younger, older women? And how would they know that there's even a problem that they should talk to a doctor or some kind of healthcare provider about? What, what's the red flag that might make them say, hey, I wonder if I've got this? You know, I'm not sure how many people actually wonder if they have it. I think that mm. it's not maybe in their sphere of thought, but it's more that they're presenting because they're their period's irregular, or like we were saying before, maybe there's hair loss or acne that's excessive and, you know, without a known cause. And it's really common, well, you know, it's only presents in women of reproductive age, so we're talking from adolescence through menopause, though more commonly it presents initially in the early stages. So mm -hmm. a lot of younger women now are presenting in the early years of menstruation because their menstruation doesn't regulate and remains abnormal. And so that's maybe an initial flag. If it develops later in life after a period of normal menstruation, often that could be related to a significant amount of weight gain or some other factors that are contributing. So it could be a woman of any age, but it commonly presents in, in those two categories of women. So it's probably some degree of irregular periods or a woman may have even gotten in a relationship where they wanted to have babies and found out that they were infertile or having a difficult time conceiving. So something's going on with their periods. They may have more hair on their chest or chin than you would think is normal. And they may have a particularly bad form of acne. Are those all kind of fair things to raise a red flag? Yeah, I think they are. Yeah. And, and we use in the term to describe this polycystic ovaries. How would you know if you had polycystic ovaries? How was that tested? 
Well, you can do imaging tests. I mean, I think that's a, you know, we could have mentioned that earlier, but that's a really common misconception. So you can have a syndrome called polycystic ovary and not have any cysts on your ovaries. I mean, it's <laughs> it's not a diagnostic criteria. I mean, it 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 may be common. They're painless and fluid-filled cysts. They're usually small. There's multiple presentations of them, which you would discover in imaging, but you still have to go to your doctor because you think something is wrong or something feels imbalanced for them to find those. You're probably not going to feel them or notice them, but the changes that they're causing are causing those other symptoms that you were talking about, like period changes and hair growth and things like that. And these cysts can be really big or maybe not quite so noticeable if they have an imaging study, an ultrasound? I think they could be. I think commonly they're smaller. Other things cause cysts that are not PCOS and some of those types of causes may present different types of cysts. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I do think that it got its name from, you know, when we were first discovering how this was working, that's what they were noticing. They were polycystic, so multiple cysts. And those kind of clusters of smaller cysts were a hallmark of when we were first trying to figure out what PCOS was and how it worked. But the cysts are always noticeable. No, they are not. I understand there's like a formal medical criteria for PCOS that says cysts could be present but may not even be present, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, I think that's a big a big part of the misunderstanding. You could definitely have not a single cyst and have PCOS. Uh-huh. So basically how we think of it is it's a hormonal disorder, right? It's a reproductive hormonal disorder. Yeah, I think that that's the the overarching picture, although there's a really big metabolism component mm -hmm. and metabolic component. So if you want to get fussy, you could call those metabolic components hormone-related as well, different types of hormones. Um, but sexual hormones or metabolism, you know, those are the big pictures. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I remember the first time I heard about PCOS, it was kind of framed as a consequence of metabolic syndrome or prediabetes. Is it which one is it? Does a, a woman have metabolic syndrome or prediabetes or something like that? Insulin resistance. We should probably define all these terms. Do they have that first and then get PCOS or do they travel together? What's the relationship between sugar metabolism and PCOS? I think that's a chicken and egg scenario. Mm. I, I think sometimes the chicken comes before the egg and sometimes the egg before the chicken. They don't always present together just like we were talking about. So you don't have to have that insulin resistance or even overweight picture to be part of a PCOS diagnosis. Even though it may be common, it's not a requirement. So it may present without it, it may present at the same time, or one could lead to the other. But there isn't an exact causal relationship that we have at least figured out at this point. So the traditional, conventional notion is that PCOS occurs in a woman who's overweight. What you're saying is you can be thin and have PCOS, correct? Yes. Yeah. And so do we have some idea what that that's about? I mean, is it does it have something to do, for example, something to do with the gut microbiome? Well, I think we'd love to figure that out. Um, mm. I mean, I think that's what we're all here for, right? We The focus of longevity is always trying to offer solutions or explore criteria for diseases that we don't really understand or syndromes or presentations that we don't really understand. I mean, I think they started with IBS. So again, another syndrome, which is, you know, a sort of bucket for having a digestive complaint. 
and not a lot of options for it. You you give them an option for the diarrhea or you give an option for the constipation, but it doesn't mean we know what's causing it or, or where it's coming from. And so Longevity took a really big leap to try to help identify a more complicated picture or a more sophisticated picture of what the gut microbiome looks like to try to help provide answers and actionable you know, recommendations for people with IBS. And that's exactly what we're trying to lead into here with PCOS coming, you know, another syndrome that women really don't have a lot of treatment options for. We don't know what causes it. We don't even know all of the aspects of it. And so longevity is really seeking to try to bring together a lot of diagnostic criteria that hasn't been combined before to try to give a more overall clinical picture of a woman with PCOS. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of looking into the the overall functional problems exactly that are involved here and i you know this brings to mind a topic that dr lipman and i discussed in the past which was fatty liver there was this kind of classic sense of fatty liver that it's caused by eating too much sugar or high fructose corn syrup etc but then there's all this data showing that abnormalities in the gut microbiome imbalances of bacteria in the gut are also major contributors so you know, it's not just a dietary thing. There's there's something going on with all those microbes that's contributing to the problem. I do think that that's probably true. And if nothing else, a definite possibility. And I don't think anyone's done enough research to know for sure, which is, you know, part of what we're trying to seek to do here is to prove out that relationship. Well, here's the important question. Is PCOS increasing in our society? Do we know? I think that it is because we have some level of increase in BMI in our society mm-hmm. and because those are related. In body mass index. Yes, exactly. And another part is we're, we're getting better at identifying it. And I think practitioners are getting better at diagnosing it and being able to approach it when it was sort of maybe not that long ago, a little bit confusing. So I do think there's some aspect of increase in society. I also think there are, are better criteria and better early identification for women who have PCOS. Well, part of the reason I ask that is I'm thinking if it's increasing, is there something we are doing? Is there a lifestyle that, you know, we're making choices about or maybe don't realize we're making choices about that are contributing to this? Do you have any sense about that? Is there something we're doing? I feel like we could probably have a whole podcast about that. (laughs) Yeah, let's have a whole podcast on that. (laughs) I think that would make more sense. But yeah, we have we have more time seated. We have less time standing. We have less time moving. We're screen focused. You know, we have to buy smart watches that tell us to stand up once an hour, which is kind of crazy. Yes, please stand up and move around for one (laughs) minute. And you succeeded today. So I do think that's part of it, a sedentary lifestyle, stress-related aspects are certainly a component. You know, those hormones that are related to stress are also interrelated with some of those androgen hormones that that women have imbalances with in PCOS. I think that's part of it. Based on my background for education, I'm sure you'd we could talk forever about how I feel about the standard American diet and what our <laughs> options are for food supply. Standard uh, American diet equals sad. Yeah, that's exactly. Sad. It's very sad. Uh, so I do, I think there's multiple things. If, uh, there, I don't know if they, they still talk about this, but I remember years ago reading a theory about PCOS that said that it kind of dates back to hunter-gatherer times when the women who were overweight were less fertile. So when there's plenty of food, 
Those women were not fertile. They weren't having babies. But during times of starvation, the women who were fertile became infertile. They stopped having periods because they'd get too thin. And the women who were overweight became fertile and they would pass on their genes. So the theory was that's why these genes are still there. Because you might ask, well, what's the evolutionary advantage of having a gene that makes you infertile? Why would that stick around in our society and even increase? And so the, this whole idea was like, well, those are the women that, that allowed for the, the tribe to continue to pass on progeny. So I don't know if they still consider that to be as a, a possibility, but you know it certainly makes you wonder. And the reason I bring it up is because I know that one of the main strategies for PCOS is weight loss. That you know the number of studies showing that women who are even just a little bit overweight and they lose weight, even if they just lose five percent of their weight, then their periods get more regular. Is do you have any comments about that? I don't have specific comments about the percentage of body weight, but I do I do agree that that's 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 a primary approach to reducing PCOS symptoms, if not reversing the diagnosis, would be getting into and maintaining a healthy weight, which is really going to help with so many of the other aspects of PCOS. But then again, you know, we're back to that conversation about women who are at a healthy weight. So I think it's the approach is dependent. You don't want to tell them to lose weight. Exactly. Right. We have to meet women where they are. And so I do think for a large component, which I think the estimates are 30% of women have a normal weight that have a diagnosis of PCOS. So yes, that weight reduction component is important because, you know, then we're talking about 70% of women who are struggling with PCOS being overweight. If a woman had PCOS and she's not overweight, would it still be worth doing some kind of dietary modification? Or is, is that kind of what you're trying to ask in the Thorn study? I think that's part of it. And also trying to understand what are the other components that we're missing for connection if someone is not overweight. So that, you know, if there isn't that insulin resistance aspect or an overweight aspect, then we still need to figure out some more like body causation for the androgen imbalance. And so I think that that's a big part of it that we're trying to help make a connection with. So why do they have too much testosterone Exactly. DHEA, which oddly enough, DHEA is one of those things that actually is beneficial in in many situations. I know in the biological age test that Thorne does, DHEA is something that's really weighted very heavily as, as having a positive benefit for decreasing your biological age. So that seemed to be the opposite scenario for PCOS. Like you you actually want to have a lower DHEA. Is that right? Yeah. So I think that that's the trick there. I agree. And you're right. The biological age test takes into account a DHEA level to a, a pretty significant amount. But the beauty and the caveat of DHEA is that it can be so many things. I mean, it's like Play-Doh, you know, you can create so many different things out of it, you know, and at times we're going to create the anti-aging aspects or it's going to stay in a state that's helping us. And then if we convert too much to those androgen states like testosterone, and then you're getting the hair growth and the acne, too much of a good thing isn't always a good thing. So DHEA is a kind of a two-edged sword. It is. I mean, I take DHEA as a supplement, but maybe a woman with PCOS should think twice about doing that. I mean, we're not, we don't usually give DHEA to younger women, but maybe a, a woman who's approaching menopause or something, that would be something she needs to look long and hard on. Is that kind of what you're saying? 
Yeah, I think that would make more sense. I, I do think that women who are approaching the age where they're having declines in DHEA levels are probably less likely to be suffering from PCOS as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. that becomes less of a worry as far as that interplay. Well, that kind of brings up the issue of supplements. Are you, you interested in talking a little bit about some of the supplements? I should say that there are drugs given for PCOS. I know you. a lot of docs use clomiphene if the woman is wanting to ovulate and get pregnant. So that's a common drug. And metformin, I guess, would you still call that the gold standard drug for PCOS? Yeah. I. You know, the sad thing is, I mean, even if you bring up clomiphene, we're, we're talking about women who are specifically then trying to ovulate for fertility purposes or trying to become pregnant. You know, we would use those for that, but that isn't fixing PCOS. It's just helping to overcome a fertility issue. I think one of the only options that women are given frequently is metformin. And is there downside to that? Um, From a drug use standpoint or a prescription standpoint, I'm not sure that there are a lot of downsides to metformin, which you, aren't, you won't hear me say a whole lot that I think a drug it doesn't have a lot of downside. But as I, drugs go. As drugs as go. As drugs go, so exactly. It doesn't mean there aren't other options or other ways to modify diet or, like you said, nutritional supplements to help accomplish those same goals as what metformin can offer. Okay, everybody, let's take a short break, and then we'll be right back to answer some questions from our listeners. Tired of bloating, gas, and other digestive discomfort? Help keep your gut happy and healthy with premium probiotics, digestive enzymes, and other innovative solutions by Thorne to support optimal gut health. One example is Thorne's Floramin Prime Probiotic. This shelf-stable and stomach acid-resistant probiotic blend offers everyday GI and weight management support. Take control of the health of your gut. Visit thorne.com to explore probiotics, digestive enzymes, and other ways to support a happy and healthy gut. That's T-H-O-R-N-E.com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from the community. One thing I was going to say before the break is that how I work as an integrative practitioner is that I look at the standard of care, which is often a pharmaceutical, and try to understand how it works and then look to see if there's a supplement that might help. So one of the questions we got from our listeners is what's the best supplement for PCOS? I haven't. And this person said, I haven't had a period in years. So they're saying, what what should they do? What kind of intervention might they use? So based on what I'm saying about reverse engineering and, and what we know works, uh, Amanda, what kind of supplements do you think people should consider in that situation? Yeah. So I think if we're, if we're going back to the functionality of metformin, then we're talking about balancing healthy glucose levels, getting blood sugar balance, regulating, you know, a healthy level of insulin. And so we have a handful of things that we know can work pretty well for that. Some of them for different modalities, maybe none of them in the same way as metformin, but all of them to accomplish the 
the same goal. For some of the first things you can think about are just really basic nutrients that are, there's a lot of studies about NAC, alpha lipoic acid. Both of these things are going to help take glucose from the blood and support those healthy levels by helping that uptake into the cell. So increasing cellular glucose to help balance healthy glucose levels in the blood. So that, you can, know. Can you, for listeners who may not know what those things are, can you just do kind of a brief overview? What What is NAC now? Oh, NAC stands for N-acetylcysteine, which is a, an amino acid. It's a sulfur-containing amino acid. It does lots of really neat things other than helping with glucose balance. <laughs> but since that's what we're talking about today, and then a alpha lipoic acid or ALA is another it's an antioxidant i like to think about it like like an antioxidant regulator so it's doing some work on its own but the really important work it's doing is by helping other antioxidants work well and by you know assisting with healthy levels of oxidative stress you're you're doing lots of things and including what we're talking about today, which is achieving a balanced, healthy glucose level in the blood. I have to admit, I take both NAC and alpha-lipoic acid and, and have for a number of years. So the, so you don't have to have PCOS to take either one of them. No, you do not. What about any uh, herbal extracts or concentrates that might be helpful? Yeah, so there are a few different things. So there's one thorn product that we have that's sort of a, a combo product all around. It's also a part of recommendations that go along with our biological age test. That, that product's actually called Medibolic pretty easy to remember. But some of the extracts that it contains, or one of the biggest ones that we talk about is is a cinnamon-based herbal. So cinnamon has folk remedy uses, but also lots of clinical research about how it helps to maintain healthy blood sugar balance. And so our metabolic product is a sort of daily multivitamin, multimineral, high-protein, high-fiber blood sugar balancing supplement. It helps with weight management and other aspects of metabolic health that I think women with PCOS would find commonly in their struggles. And then... That's a pretty tasty product. Yeah, it does it. taste nice. Unless well, you... it doesn't have any sugar. You know, a lot of these products that are designed for improving metabolism actually have got fructose in them, which I don't understand. They got fructose or high fructose corn syrup and i'm like how what sense does that make well that goes back to that other podcast we're going to have about what's what's wrong with the standard american diet mm -hmm. uh, but but the good news is you're never going to see high fructose corn syrup in a thorn product it's on our no list which is an extensive list of things that you'll never see in a thorn product ever so that one's safe you're you're safe with us bob oh good good you know i have to admit when that product was first coming out we were talking about naming it one person said we could call it cinnamon roll and <laughs> said, maybe that kind of creates the wrong idea for people yeah <laughs> so me metabolic a much better name even if it was a flavor name it's still still probably not the best choice now what about fish oil is fish oil helpful for pcos well, I think the great thing about fish oil is omega-3s help with healthy inflammation levels. And so anytime you have a, an imbalance in glucose or insulin, or if you're dealing with any kind of overweight or even obesity, there's some level of inflammation that's associated with so many different conditions. So what you're getting for a benefit with omega-3s or, or fish oil or vegan options is helping to maintain a healthy balance in the body to help regulate some of those aspects of inflammation that are associated with multiple conditions. And do you need to take a lot of fish oil or like, do you need to eat five pounds of salmon a day or 10 well, capsules or what? How much do you need? I think that that is up for debate. I think that that's 
clinician specific. I think that practitioners like to make some personalized recommendations there. I think that you, unless you really, really love salmon and you're eating a whole lot of it all the time, probably aren't getting an optimal amount for helping to provide the benefit that you could get from a supplement. So maybe two capsules a day, is that a fair? Yeah, I think that some products are great for two capsules depending on the clinical presentation or what someone's trying to accomplish with their supplementation, maybe three. If capsules are an option, there are always liquid options like our Omega Superb, which actually tastes really great. It's my favorite of our Omega-3 products personally. So, you know, if big fish gel caps are not your jam, you can always look for other options. Uh, One person asked, is vitamin C bad for PCOS? Why would they think that? I'm not sure. So I was looking at that a little, trying to figure out where that may have come from, because the only thing I can think of is vitamin C being helpful. So those other aspects we talked about, like with alpha lipoic acid and antioxidant support and regulating oxidative stress in the body, vitamin C is really another one of those antioxidants. Vitamin C and alpha lipoic acid could play really nicely together in accomplishing that same goal. So I'm not sure. I mean, Bob, do you know? Would you want to avoid vitamin C? I have no idea. I mean, I would think I think vitamin C would be a great thing to take. Yeah, I agree. I think it would be great. Now, somebody asked about inositol. I think, you know, there's quite a bit of research on inositol for PCOS. But to be honest, I started reviewing that literature recently and I got confused very quickly because there, there are different types of inositol. There's myo-inositol, which is just another name for the inositol that you find in food and plants. And then there's D-chiro inositol. I realize we could probably have a whole podcast on that, but I wonder if maybe you could give us a quick summary of, of what we know about inositol. Yeah, so inositol is great for someone with PCOS because it's addressing multiple different aspects. So there's clinical research about inositol format helping with insulin resistance, sensitizing the body to properly manage blood sugar levels and maintain healthy blood sugar levels. Also has some benefit for mood support as its own. Another thing we hadn't really talked about is depression and anxiety is a really common part of the picture of PCOS. So you're covering at least two bases there among others, neurological support, brain structure support, and things like that. And you're right, there are two types of inositol. It's Dechiro and myo-inositol. Another doctor friend of mine gave me a really cute way to remember it. And, you know, if we're talking about ratios, you want to have a higher ratio of myo-inositol to Cairo, D Cairo. And she said she thinks of it like my ovaries, myo-inositol. Oh, sweet. It's really nice. So that high, that ratio is just, it's more effective, safer? More effective and used in the literature at a, at a 40 to 1 ratio is really commonly used, especially in combination with folate. I think that there are five clinical studies related to PCOS and aspects of PCOS that use that combination, which is really great. One of the things Thorne is currently looking at for our women's product suite for next year is a formula to benefit ovarian health and support a healthy ovarian function. And those are the things we're looking at now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we can look forward to that. Oh, yes. So um, I think a lot of women that have irregular periods are put on oral contraceptive agents to try to regulate their periods if you know, if for no other reason, just so that they've got consistency. One person asked, what supplements should I take while I'm on oral contraceptive agents? So do you have any comment about that? 
So I think that that could vary a lot with how the woman is experiencing her birth control journey. Really, some people experience fatigue. Other people have a dip in energy levels or libido. I think that, you know, that could get really personalized and that could be another thing we could we could talk about for a whole podcast. But I think really commonly or in my practice, I would commonly think about putting women on a B vitamin supplement. So these B vitamins are depleted when you're metabolizing the hormones in your liver. Some of those B vitamins are really important to hormone balance, like B6, which takes a really hard hit from an oral contraceptive pill. So something like a B complex is going to help replete those nutrients that are lost in processing a birth control pill. And some B complexes, like Thorne's B complex number six, has a full spectrum of B vitamins, but some extra B6 in there. That would be one of my top picks. I totally agree with you. I have a little bit of an anecdote, which is when I was in medical school, I actually did a study on birth control pills and vitamin depletion. And we actually confirmed earlier studies that showed that birth control pills deplete you of B6. And then we communicated with one of the makers of a oral contraceptive and said, why don't you put a B-complex in with the birth control pill? And they said, oh, well, we don't want people taking birth control pills to think that they could cause a problem. And if we put B vitamins in there, then that might scare them off. And so we know that what you say is true. You know, and this was 40 years ago. We know what you say is true. We'd rather not talk about it. Because, you know, we don't want to do anything to get our customer base upset, which I thought was a pretty interesting thing. That it, That is interesting. I think more and more we realize, you know, why we choose the professions we choose. And, you know, we may have different designations, but I think we're both in it for the same end goal to try to help people be educated about things like that and, and, and help balance lifestyle and other sort of nutrient aspects with what's definitely needed in a pharmaceutical world. Well, that that brings us to what I think is probably the most important question, which is why is Thorne so interested in PCOS and and what exactly is this study that Thorne is involved in with longevity? Yeah, so I think we touched on this a little bit before. One of the reasons why Thorne is interested in PCOS is because we're looking to expand our diagnostic options and our, and our analytic options with the longevity platform. So like we were talking about IBS being the first approach, this is sort of our next target for trying to help identify more ways that a natural lifestyle, lifestyle recommendations, nutritional supplements and diet can help with these syndromes that we don't have a lot of answers for. So that's that's the first part. And the second part, which I alluded to a little bit already, is we're planning to release a series of, of products from Thorn next year that are focused on women's health. And we want to get a better picture from women about what their experience is, what are the ways that we need to be approaching this to help women or who are suffering from PCOS, what, you know, what are the things that we're going to learn from this study about how we can intervene from a dietary supplement standpoint. And so it's two things. We're, we're trying to gain insight in the biological processes, which are extremely complicated, that are related to PCOS, and also help us to develop better products for those who need them. You know, I can't think of any other supplement company that does that. 
that says, hey, we want to expand into this area. So let's actually do, let's get a grant from the National Institutes of Health and, and study this in some detail with very sophisticated technology with the metagenomics testing and hormone testing, chem, chemistry testing, et cetera. That's a pretty, pretty fancy way to do things. I think it's super fancy. I, I, I think you're right. No one else is doing it. And and even if we were talking about someone trying to integrate it into nutritional supplementation, I think this study is putting together such a combination of information that, that no one's done before. So we're looking to combine information about, well, you know, if, if you want to make it catchy, the genome, the microbiome, the metabolome, and the epigenome. So, you know, we're trying to gather information about normal blood measures that, that women may already be getting from their doctor, but are they getting a genetic test to look at what their predisposing factors are? Uh, we're adding a gut microbiome component, just like you were talking about before. We know there's a strong association with the metabolome and blood sugar management and gut health. Um, we're also looking at the vaginal microbiome and how that is contributing to possible imbalances. And, you know, we're looking at salivary hormones as well. So we're taking pieces we already know are related and seeing how they correlate with other pieces that no one's looked at before. So it's really, really important. If I was a woman, I'd say, I'm in, sign me up. Exactly. Uh, I would do. <laughs> you would too, but I'm not. So who would be able to participate? How do they do it? What's the requirement for getting into the study? Do you have to be infertile and have acne and no, you and don't hairy um, chin or what? You don't have to have any specific symptoms set, but we would ask that you are either currently diagnosed or have previously been diagnosed with PCOS. Can you be taking metformin or no? You also cannot be using any type of hormone or hormonal birth control for the previous three months. So no oral contraceptives or any other hormones. Right. And then you shouldn't have any other significant endocrine imbalances or significant medical conditions so that we can focus on the exact relationship between your metrics and the PCOS connection. And how do you sign up? So you can sign up by emailing the study coordinator at Longevity. We can add that here, but also if you need to review more about that study or find an exact link to that email, if you go to thorn.com and in the search bar type PCOS and then click the button that says articles, you're going to see the information about our opportunity to join Longevity's PCOS research study, more information about what you'll receive as a participant, exactly what we're testing and trying to accomplish, and then as well as the, the connection to sign up to, to be a participant. Great. So we'll put all that information in the show notes. So it's in case you're in your car listening to this, you don't have a wreck because you're trying to write it down. So it'll this will all be written down. Um, what do you get if you're in the study? What's the advantage of signing up? I think there's a lot of advantages. To me, the most important advantage would be you get all of these diagnostic metrics back for yourself. So we're not just keeping them and hoarding them away so we can make you great products. You get to take them home to review with your physician or review with your other provider. Any hormone levels, any of the microbiome and vaginal microbiome information that we get is yours to keep. It's about an $800 value in testing methods, which is pretty significant. It only requires about two hours of your time. You can do almost all of it at home with the exception of a, a blood draw. And then we 
are also including an Amazon gift card for $50 upon completion of the study. Oh, like I said, sign me up. I uh, said I have to become female first. Yeah, we'll do more studies for you. I'll keep you in the loop. Do male studies in the future. I, I want to do all these things. Now, how long is it going to take to get the results? So if somebody participates, so we're talking, you know, years out or, or how, how long do you think it'll be? For the individual participants or for us to summarize the data? Well, both. When, when will we have the information and when if people are getting tested are they going to know what their results are or is that going to be something you have to wait on so it's going to vary some of the tests will come back in three to seven days the gut microbiome information comes back in about a month and then some of the other testing because it's specialized will be batched with other participants so those will take a little longer but you're going to be starting to get data back for yourself in within a week and then what we're looking at, I mean, the, the average amount of time that it would take for a study to be completed and something to be published is over three years. Uh, we're trying to get that done a little more quickly for obvious reasons. Uh, so we're, but we're hoping to have some data that even if it's not in the published state that we'll be able to share with all of our users near the end of 2022. So we'll make another take five blog on thorn.com to update people about how the study turned out. And then we'll be working towards publication of that data. Well, this is all pretty darn exciting. And it sounds like it's just the beginning, a lot more of these kind of studies to come. So if, if you're a man, then hold on, we'll have something for you you in the future. And if you're a female that might have any of these issues that look like PCOS, then this would be a kind of a no brainer to sign up for this study. I think, you know, you're going to get a lot of free information about your metabolism and your hormones and, you know, some recommendations about what you can do to get healthier. So I think that's about all the time we have this week. Dr. Frick, I want to thank you so much for coming on, and I, I hope you can do that again in the future. Thank you. So, it was, it was yeah. nice. I'd be happy to. Let's talk about that sad diet. Okay, for sure. So uh, one more reminder, if people want to participate in the study or find out what else Thorne is up to, then it sounds like going to thorn.com is the place. Yep, thorn.com. You can find more information about the study or you can directly email studycoordinator at longevity.com. That's O-N-E-G-E-V-I-T-Y.com. Sounds great. So as always, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you learned some things and had some fun. We will be back in the future. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at thornhealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.